Thanks so much for joining us for another edition of The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. This week, The Field shifts its focus from the politics of electing new leaders to the politics of water. The key document governing distribution of Colorado River resources turned 100 last week, and that has some questioning the compact's relevancy. Today, we examine its history with a top environmental journalist. Then we'll hear from Sarah Porter, the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy, for her perspective on whether the compact will continue to serve us in the future. Plus, Congressman Raul Grijalva has long been a vocal advocate of conservation. We sat down to discuss the holistic approach needed to keep the water flowing, the crops growing, and make sure the lights stay on. In 1922, the seven Colorado River Basin states came together to make an agreement to manage the mighty river's rushing waters. The resulting compact between Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, and the country of Mexico was the first multi-state collaboration, indeed multinational agreement of its kind. Luke Runyon from member station KUNC in Greeley, Colorado, examines the historic document's legacy. Eric Kuhn walks along a gravel path above the Colorado River in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. The river below is turbid and choppy as it winds its way through town, past hot springs resorts and whitewater outfitters. Here we are about a whole 150 miles downstream of the headwaters of the Colorado River. Kuhn is the former head of the Colorado River District, a water agency based on the state's western slope. He's the co-author of the book Science Be Damned a detailed examination of how the river's foundational agreement, the Colorado River Compact, came together a century ago. When I think of rivers, I think of, well, where's where's the water coming from and where's it going? And what's happened to this river over the last 100 years? In the 19-teens, European settlers were moving into some of the most arid reaches of the country. The Southwest was rapidly developing, but one thing was missing stable water supply. The river's flows were extreme, transitioning quickly from flood to drought. Kuhn says fledgling western states saw the river as a problem to solve. We needed to control nature. We needed to uh, figure out a way to make this river from a menace to a natural resource. That mentality is what brought leaders from those states and the federal government to Santa Fe in 1922 to hammer out the agreement. It divided up the river's water and promised the states a fixed amount to use. Kuhn says the negotiators chose political expediency over science. If we, everyone agrees that there's enough water to meet all our needs, dividing it up is gonna be very easy. If there's not enough water, then it's gonna create complications. We're a hundred years later and obviously our priorities are different than the priorities of the people who existed at that time. Kathy Jacobs is a water policy professor at the University of Arizona. The priority then was irrigation water for the Southwest's small farms. They weren't thinking of what a future Phoenix metro area might need, or how their decisions would affect the Grand Canyon's ecosystems. I don't think that it's particularly flexible, and we're in a situation where flexibility will probably be key. And that inflexibility is still being felt today, Jacob says. 
because more water exists on paper than in the river, its biggest reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell, continue to decline to record lows. For Heather Tanana, a University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, the compact also represents how indigenous people have been excluded from river management over time. Water for many tribes, it's not a commodity. It's something sacred. It's something that's integral to not just human life, but the broader community and environmental well-being. Collectively, tribes hold rights to more than 20% of the river's water, but only recently have calls for a tribal seat at the negotiating table been seriously considered by the states and the federal government. That's been a shift in the last, really, I think, five years of recognizing tribal interests, their legal rights, and beyond that, that tribes can be a part of problem solving. So with all of its flaws, why would anyone want to keep using the compact? Well, Kevin Wheeler, a river management fellow at the University of Oxford in the UK, says more water leaders are choosing to ignore some of the compact's math. Newer agreements show some willingness to cut back on overall water use voluntarily. Even though no individual state wants to take the hit, They all recognize the need to take the hit together. And what the compact serves as now, he says, is a way to keep all of the users returning to the negotiating table. What's often been said is we're not going to get rid of it, but we may have to bend the hell out of it to make it work. And figure out a way to bend it before the whole system breaks. Luke Runyon, reporter for NPR member station KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. You're listening to The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. In late October, the Bureau of Reclamation announced it needs to revise the 2007 guidelines currently governing use of Colorado River water to protect Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Both are at their lowest levels since their creation decades ago, yet 100 years after its inception, the compact that governs them remains unaltered, and Yuma farmers want it to stay that way. Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University, explains why. Has this compact held up? Has it stood the test of time? 100 years later, does it need to be renegotiated? Well, there's actually a big split of opinion on this very question. Should we throw it away and start over again, or should we just keep negotiating, you know, from where we are? Um, and, And I tend to fall on the side of the compact has proved to be as adaptable as we need it to be, and it's important for long-term economic security and water certainty to stay within the compact and negotiate from there, to fix the things that aren't working currently rather than throw throw the whole thing away. Um, On top of the compact are years and years of federal legislation, U.S. Supreme Court opinions, and um, binational treaties between the U.S. and Mexico, and most recently in 2007 and then in 2019, multi-state compacts coupled with uh, binational agreements with Mexico that all have uh, influenced and changed how the system is managed. 
Um, and so to me, that's evidence of the adaptability that we need for the compact to hold, to continue to hold up. So perhaps it is the fact that it was a rather simple framework that has enabled it to be adapted to changing times and needs. Yeah, it could be. That could be. And, um, you know, what the compact does basically, all it does is divide the Colorado River, the water from the Colorado system, between an upper basin and a lower basin. So it, the, when the compact was entered into, the state decided that there must be about 15 million acre feet of water in the system on average um, every year. And so they decided to split it in half with seven and a half million acre feet going to the upper basin, which is Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and the tiny little northeast corner of Arizona. And then seven and a half million acre feet going to the lower basin, which is California, Nevada, most of Arizona, and then um, Mexico. Really, the compact doesn't do much else besides split the water in the system. One question that came up a lot from listeners was, how come California doesn't have to give up anything? And I think your your listeners might also wonder, why doesn't Yuma have to give up anything? <laughs> Should explain why Yuma farmers don't want to see the compact renegotiated. So, well, all right, or, so right. right, so it's a it's a misnomer um, to say that Arizona is giving up water. It's actually Central Arizona that's taking the cut, and that's because when. Um, the state of Arizona was so eager to build the Central Arizona Project, the canal that moved Colorado River water from Lake Havasu to Phoenix and Tucson, um, they, to get the agreement of the California congressional delegation to finance, to provide federal financing for this project, Arizona had to, to agree to this concession that Central Arizona would be the junior user so that in a time of shortage, Central Arizona would bear the brunt of shortage. And that's why, the, you know, as instead of just having the federal government, the, the agency that manages the Colorado River is the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. It's part of the Department of Interior. And so in, in 2007 and 2019, uh, we agreed to voluntary, as it were, cut. Um, if Lake Mead hits certain lower and lower levels, rather than letting things get worse and worse and worse and having the Federal Bureau announce a shortage and having it totally fall on CAP users. So that's sort of the backstory. We, we kind of decided that it would be better if we had a little more control of our fate and agreed to take shortages should Lake Mead reach certain levels. And so this very year, 2022, was the first year ever of an actual cut of deliveries in the Colorado River. In many respects, the cuts are just on top of cuts that were already agreed to in 2007. And there isn't, um, in those agreements, Yuma area farmers or, you know, are not at risk for cuts. They, there would have to be new agreements. Um, for, you know, or something else would have to happen for them to to experience cuts in water supply. But when we're in this kind of situation where, you know, we are truly looking at the 
one or another of the two big reservoirs that hold the water for the lower basin, that's Lake Mead and, and Lake Powell, we're looking at those reservoir levels falling to a point where they could hit Deadpool. And that's where no more water can be delivered off the system. If we hit Deadpool, that means the turbines at Hoover and the Glen Canyon Dam stop turning, and that leaves how many millions of people without electricity? Yeah, well, it's the, the level at which we hit power isn't being produced anymore is even is higher than Deadpool. So um, we're actually, you know, more perilously close to those levels than we are to Deadpool. I'm not an energy expert, and I don't think it's an actual issue of people not having electricity because we do have a grid. The question is, is there enough resilience in the grid to make up for all of the, the, the power that would no longer be produced by the, power, by the, the two um, hydropower projects? And there is a big concern that there wouldn't be enough power, so there might be brownouts. You know, there might be those kinds of shortages. So it, it kind of remains to be seen. Um, I've heard from, you know, experts on, on this that the main impacts would probably be felt by rural and tribal uh, users, energy, you know, power users, that the big um, urban utilities have more ability to to obtain and secure redundant power supplies so that if, if the hydropower goes down, they have a better capacity to, to find energy to make up for what's lost. But it's a really serious issue. But even worse, you know, in some respects, I mean, I would say this is even more serious. Water is not like electrons. You know, water is not on a grid. If Lake Mead hit Deadpool, that would mean zero to minimal flows in the Colorado River, which sustains millions of acres of agriculture in, you know, <laughs> in the lower basin. Hey, here in Yuma, and, the, you know, flows, the Colorado, the Colorado yeah. flows right through Yuma. So, so we see it. So that's really what we're looking at. And that's, that's why the, the growers in Yuma have, you know, have a level of urgency in their proposal, um, you know, to try to keep, hold back some water, to agree to take less water to keep the system functional. I mean, and they and, are under yeah. some pressure to do so because they are perceived as the largest consumer of and they water. Are. And, and they, they are. are. Yeah. Agriculture uses about... 75% of the water that's consumed from the Colorado system. And cities consume about 25%. And I'm not talking about just Phoenix and Tucson. We're talking about Southern California cities like San Diego and Los Angeles. We're talking about Denver. You know, we're talking about a, a whole you know, bunch of systems, a whole bunch of cities that rely on water from the Colorado River. Is the state of Arizona doing enough to confront this issue, do you think? It's a very difficult situation because there are multiple parties. You know, there are growers, there are cities, there are tribes. You know, there are dozens of different critically important stakeholders 
throughout the basin and Mexico that stand to be impacted by whatever whatever plan is eventually implemented or to be terribly negatively impacted by um, having the lake levels, you know, decline to, to Deadpool. It's extremely hard to get everybody to come together and agree on something to do. I think the state of Arizona is doing everything it can. And at this point we've, we've heard from the state, kind of the spokespeople for each of the states. So we, we kind of know where what everybody's opening gambit is. That was Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU. Senator Kirsten Sinema recently shared with the field that proposal submitted by Yuma Save the River Coalition is under active consideration by a newly created water advisory board. The senator says we should learn more about its status in early 2023. The farmer's plan could save a million acre feet of water a year. Thanks so much for listening to The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. Congressman Raul Grijalva has unique insight into the Western water woes as chairman of the House Committee on Natural Resources and as a vocal conservation advocate. We recently sat down to discuss the future of water management and why it's time to include Native American tribes in the conversation. When we passed the, the $4 billion uh relief for the Colorado Basin states and, and and for essentially conservation and for planning purposes, because this mega drought, uh, Lisa, is not going to go away. Uh, it's going to be with us. And and the depletion of the Colorado River uh, is going to affect everybody in the state. And an agricultural dependent area, such as Yuma in particular, you know, and, and, and farming has uh, first tier uh, on, on, uh, on, on the water use from the Colorado and, and from uh, and from pumping, but the fact remains that, that this is now uh, when this uh, agreement was signed many years ago, uh, the, the situation wasn't the same. We didn't have the climate crisis and we didn't have the mega drought. We did not have the, the continued explosion in population, particularly in the Southwest, and so uh, we now find ourselves where the consumption of water is larger than the availability and, and getting worse. So, yeah, this is a crisis. So we gave Bureau of Reclamation the authority to, to negotiate and, if necessary, to impose uh, some uh, some benchmarks and some solutions. Uh, the negotiations have been back and forth. Uh, all the states are involved, each state having its own particular issue that they want to uh, in terms of retaining their the amount of water that they have, particularly California uh, and uh, and Nevada, and so it has been difficult. Right? And and we, I've been encouraging the Bureau of Reclamation to be more proactive, not to wait uh, for some agreement among the states when they need to be in there uh, mandating and pushing for some agreement that is going to get us uh, not only through the immediate drought issue, but also in the long term. What are we going to look like, and what is that water ability? availability going to be then and and i think it'll be just as it is now and uh and i think the bureau is going to have to play a much stronger role than it's playing right now well i do know that yuma farmers are are in negotiations with 
the Bureau, they have put forth a plan that could save considerable acre feet. You're dealing with that negotiation that's going on there in, in different individual states, but you're also talking about the regional, the upper and lower basin states. Uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, to some extent Utah, Arizona, and Southern California primarily. And that's where the water usage is. It's, uh, that's where the balance has to be reached. Uh, and uh, so far, you know, uh, the, the level of cooperation among the states has not been there. And also, I think that in Arizona, uh, that, that there has to be a change in water policy. Right now, the assured water permits are, are a dime a dozen. And in some areas, there is no active management. Uh, and we, we make deals with the Saudi Arabians to lease practically for, uh, and, and to ground and to pump as much water as they can in order to grow alfalfa to export to Saudi Arabia. We have state laws that have, un, unlim, have no limit on the usage by mining, uh, in, in extraction activities, mining activities of water. And so, and, and the list goes on and on. And, and, and the stakeholders in Arizona are more diverse than they used to be. Uh, we have metropolitan areas such as Yuma, and we're, uh, we have Tucson, Phoenix, and, the, and, and other cities in which uh, their dependency on water for both growth and economic development is huge. So all those factors require that there be some state intervention, some state leadership, and uh, and assured water being the primary one, to making sure that before you issue development per- permits, before you agree to something, that there is a assured water uh, requirement there. And if, and if there is going to be an effect, what are the consequences of continuing in the pattern that we are? Nobody wants to change habits. It sounds to me like you are advocating for a much more holistic approach. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, it's... I've said all along that that that, the, that that water was a finite resource that we have. It, it's not limited, it, 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 and there are limits to it. And to begin to deal with it as as, as that that way, not as a not as a, a resource that has no limits. And so, uh, I think everybody's beginning to come to the realization that it's going to be a combination of things: conservation, water usage for existing demand. And demand. What are, what are those two? Agriculture, extraction, energy production. All those factors are the, are the big players in the, in the metropolitan areas, the large cities like Phoenix, etc., whose demand for water is constant and continues to be. Those are the big players in this in this story. And uh, I think that uh, whoever our governor ends up being, uh, that's going to be topic number one and you can't you can't ignore it you can't deny it you can't try to pretend it's not there the fact is that 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 is not only a crisis now but it looms even more profound uh, as time goes on and we don't do anything about it you know another key player that i personally don't think has gotten much attention are the native american tribes they have hold a lot of water rights it feels they were slow in being brought to the table. Do you agree with that perspective? Oh, well, yeah. One, one of the things that's mandated in that law, that in the money that we pass, is that there must be there must be full consultation and full involvement at the table 
as co-equals in any discussion in Arizona or in any of the, the basin states by indigenous communities and tribal governments regarding water. The water settlements have to close, uh, and there has to be the resources. We finally got some, but not what's entirely needed, in order to be able to implement those water settlements so that they have the infrastructure. You know, the Gila River, uh, Colorado River tribes uh, made great contributions to get us to that first phase of responding to the drought. But the second phase, the rest of it is coming, and tribes play a huge role. And if they're not at the table, they have uh, they have top tier rights uh, to that water, and they and if the, if they're going to be needed in terms of a cooperative attitude, uh, a cooperative uh, collaboration with all the other stakeholders, then you have to they have to come as equals, and we have to understand that they also have needs that have to be responded to as well. Why did it Why did it take so long to turn to the tribes to start having these this conversation? You'd reach the point in the water availability and water usage where the holders of, 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 of those water rights and that reserve were the tribes, a significant amount. And uh, reality bites. And so I think all that, including the current uh, governor and administration, legislature, municipalities, SRP, etc., they all came to the realization that they could not go any further. And so I think the turn to the tribe became was one of necessity. And now uh, that the turn has been made, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be how you integrate tribe as full participating partner in any decision. That's, that's a step that needs to be solidified right now. That was U.S. Congressman Raul Grijalva. Next week, the field goes back onto the election beat. We'll sit down with Russ Jones, chairman of Yuma's Republican Party, and Yuma County Supervisor Lynn Pancrassi, a pillar of the Democratic Party, to review the most recent election, reflect on their respective parties, and discuss what's next for Yuma and the great state of Arizona. The Field is a production of KAWC Colorado River Public Media. Send your questions or comments to me, lisa.sturgis at kawc.org. Our theme music was composed by Steve Hennig and performed by members of the Yuma Jazz Company. For more information, visit yumajazz.com. Thanks so much for listening to The Field from KAWC. Remember, you can always hear the show at kawc.org, on the KAWC app, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Lisa Sturgis. I hope you'll be back again next week. Till then, keep yourself informed.